All right. On June 5th, 2021, President Trump returned to Ric Flair country, North Carolina, for the North Carolina GOP Republican Convention, the annual Republican Convention. I, of course, I tried to upload this to YouTube, and you can imagine what happened. Another strike. So it seems like any time we try to upload anything related to Donald Trump, any of his speeches, just his speeches, none of our commentary or anything like that, just his speeches will get you a strike on YouTube. But thankfully, that is not happening here. So that's why I decided to, I'm going to post that here, just like I posted all of his other speeches right here. So I want to thank Anchor FM and Spotify and everyone else who's not censoring. You can find this same, you can find the video on BitChute, on my BitChute channel, on my Rumble channel. Just look up Greg Fernandez Jr., put in President Trump, and it should come up. So I'll be adding some more of those there. Everything that I won't be able to add on YouTube, which I'm really getting sick and tired of. That's why I've been writing a book for the Voter Fraud 2020. So make sure to keep an eye out for that. And again, thank you all for listening to this podcast. You're going to hear a couple speakers before President Trump comes up. Then, um, then you'll hear President Trump speak, and of course, it's another great speech. God bless you all. My comments earlier yesterday to welcome everybody to the convention, one of the strongest applause lines that I got, and one of the strongest applause lines that I get anywhere as we travel across the state, is that we need to have four seats to be able to retake the House of Representatives. We have the opportunity, when we win all eight of our congressional Republican seats this time around, and we have redistricting, and we pick up an extra seat through the census, that we in North Carolina are going to be the tip of the spear in sending Nancy Pelosi back to San Francisco where she belongs. Want to open up our program by inviting our ninth district uh, member of Congress, our representative, Dan Bishop. I want to thank all of you for sending me to Washington in that special election in 2019 to take up the fight for the United States of America. I want to give you a highlight or two, three months and three minutes, how it started, how it's going. Today in the Robesonian, a man who plans to take me on in 2022 offered an an op-ed against my vote against the so-called American Rescue Plan. Bring it on. A $1.9 trillion massive increase in our deficit, debt, blue state bailouts, only 9% expended for COVID relief, indiscriminate spending, drop the Hyde Amendment so money would be spent for abortions. I joined every Republican in the United States House opposing that legislation, and somebody needs to tell my future opponent. Biden and the so-called American Rescue Plan are killing jobs, just like we said it would. Biden and the American Rescue Plan has lit inflation in this country, a tax increase for every man, woman, and child in America. Helped almost nothing and is a drag on our recovery from the pandemic. We'll win that debate, ladies and gentlemen. 
Or consider at the beginning of April, I joined Jim Jordan and other Republicans at the border, the southwestern border. We're into our third straight month of the worst surge of illegal immigration into the United States in 20 years. Only response by Joe Biden or Kamala Harris is to increase the throughput. And so we see scenes like young children being dropped from walls and people crying out as they drown in the Rio Grande. Illegals flown or bust to areas all over the country unprepared to assimilate into American life and without, and with very limited support. They'll show up in our schools that are trying to recover from the pandemic. I'm proud to help expose it, and our Republicans in Congress have gotten the message out, ladies and gentlemen. It's a border disaster, a catastrophe for the United States of America. Or take us to the past month, just a few weeks ago, when I introduced, together with more than 30 co-sponsors in the House, legislation to take on the notion of critical race theory in the United States. to ban it in the United States military and to ensure that federal funds won't be spent advancing the notion of state-sponsored racism, state-sanctioned racism in the United States. And the left is taking notice. They're on the defensive. They know we've got the right message. Let's take it forward. One last. In late February, ladies and gentlemen, I was the Republican who made the motion to vacate the chair of Liz Cheney in the Republican conference leadership. It took more than 90 days, but now our conference is united with Elise Stefanik of New York having replaced Liz Cheney, and we're ready to march forward as conservatives. Let me conclude this way along with those highlights of just three items. I opposed H.R. 1 to take with Democrats seeking to federalize control with corrupt control of our election system. I opposed the PRO Act that would banish right to work in, st in 34 states in the United States. I opposed the bill to cripple policing across the country. I opposed the Equality Act that would turn our civil rights laws into for instead of being defense for people whose rights are under threat, it would be a means to victimize those who have religious conscience in this country. In the course of my time in Congress, I've accumulated a 100% ACU rating, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm fighting and I'm standing up for our principles, and I have no shame for them, and I intend to continue doing it. I want you to remember... The 9th District, I live in southeastern Charlotte. It's an ex-urban district in some ways. And the conventional wisdom is to play the net, 51-49% politics. But ladies and gentlemen, what I would say to all of us gathered Republicans today is that conventional wisdom is wrong. Governor Ron DeSantis said it recently, and he's exactly right. There's a great hunger in the United States for people who will fight for America. And that's what all of us are going to do. We've got these, this, we're already into the cycle, we're already working hard, this is an important step along the way. We're going to take back the United States House in 2022, 
and I'm going to be right there with you. God bless you all. Thank you. Next, I'd like to introduce my good friend and our great representative from the 7th District, David Rouser. Thank you, Michael. Are you ready to hear from a great governor and a great president of the United States later on today? You know, four months, a lot has changed. You got Russia, China, Iran on the march, the Middle East in turmoil, a border catastrophe, growing inflation, huge increase in the price of gas, probably going to continue, slower than expected economic growth. We're paying people not to work, a Green New Deal paraded as an infrastructure bill. And think about it this way. Had we won just one of the U.S. Senate seats in Georgia, 90% of what I just listed there would be dead on arrival. Let's don't let us be the enemy. Let's don't let that happen in North Carolina. Let's pull together, let's go out, let's recruit the right candidates, and let's win so that we retake the House in 2022 we retake the U.S. Senate in 2022, and we win the White House in 2024. Thank you, and God bless you. Last year, Nancy Pelosi's number one target in the entire country was the 8th District's Richard Hudson. And thank you for all of those who knocked on doors, made phone calls, and worked our polls, and delivered 53% of the election for him. Welcome, please, Richard Hudson. Thank you all so much. What a great welcome. You know, uh, Chairman Watley, you're doing a tremendous job as our chairman. Thank you so much for the job you do. Um, he actually looks better than when I saw him this morning. I came downstairs to the lobby to get some coffee, and, and I saw Chairman Watley, and he looked rattled. I said, Michael, what's wrong? He said, oh, I just, it's been a terrible morning. I locked myself in my hotel room. I had to call the general manager of the hotel to come get me out of my room. It's just been awful. I said, Chairman, what happened? He said, well, I just, I just couldn't figure out how to get out of my room. One door was the bathroom, one was the closet, and the other had a sign on it that said, do not disturb. We're glad you got out of the room, Chairman, and got down to the event today. Uh, let me, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all you do every single day for this party. Thank you for what you all did for me last election. Uh, and and I, wanted, I want to encourage you, because there's never been a better time to be a Republican. And this next election, I am convinced we're going to take back the majority in the House. Historically, a new president, first midterm, loses 20 to 27 seats in the House. Structurally, Republican legislature is going to draw 187 seats. Democrat legislature is going to draw 47 seats. The rest are commissions are divided. But more importantly, the reason we're going to take back the House is because Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi have lost their mind. Have you seen what they're proposing? Have you seen what they're trying to do to this country? Pres President Biden released his budget on Friday. That was an old 
joke in Washington, if you have bad news, release it on Friday. If you have really bad news, release it on Friday of a holiday weekend. And it was bad news. Six trillion dollar Biden budget boondoggle, double digit increases in every department of government, except two, you wanna guess which two? Homeland Security and Defense. They cut defense, raised 30 new taxes, for the first time in over 40 years, took your taxpayer dollars and we're gonna spend it on abortions. That's what, that's what Joe Biden sees for America. By contrast, Republicans have a budget that balances in five years, cuts $14 trillion in spending, cut, cuts taxes another $1.9 trillion, protects the life of the unborn, has my concealed carry reciprocity bill in it, thank you very much, protects the Second Amendment. That's what Republicans stand for, and that's why we're going to take back the House, because of the sharp contrast and because of all of you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here with you today. God bless every single one of you. Thank you. You know, last year when we tried to have our convention here, we had to delay it. We had to delay it again. And then 10 days before our convention, Governor Cooper pulled the plug. Our friends at the convention center, all of our host hotels, and the entire community of Greenville were absolutely fantastic to work with, as was our host congressman, Greg Murphy. And as we put this event together, he and his team have been absolutely awesome at working with the community and helping to build out this event there's a reason that Donald Trump came down to campaign for him before his special election. Please welcome our host, Congressman Greg Murphy. Good afternoon, everybody, or is it morning? No, it's afternoon. Um, guys, this is a great day. We're welcoming uh, a wonderful, fantastic governor from uh, South Dakota. We're also going to recognize and welcome the President of the United States for his first big address uh, since, he's, uh, since he left office. It's really a good day. You know, the last year, I said this yesterday, the last year was a tough year. And if you've heard some of the uh, other comments from over the other members of Congress, um, it's pretty tough times. But I think there is time, there is a, a feeling of true optimism. We are in a team sport. I'm a humble to be part of what I believe is the greatest delegation in the country. North Carolina's delegation. Very, very humble to do that. But guys, we can only do this as a team. We can't splinter off. We can't go our own individual ways. But we will win back the House in 2022. You know why? We don't have an option. For our children, our grandchildren, and now with Biden spending, our great, great grandchildren. But it will take each one of you with your heart, your soul, your energy, and your prayers for us to do it. So let us all be optimistic about what we're going to do for the future of this nation, because it is our nation to take back. God bless you all. We're going to have a great day. Thank you. And as always, we save the best for last. Virginia Fox is the hardest working member in Congress. She is the dean of our delegation. 
She is my congressman, and I'm really excited to welcome Representative Virginia Fox. Thank you very much, Michael. You know, working hard for this country is not hard for me to do. I believe in this country. I believe in our values. We are the greatest country in the world, and we're going to do everything we can to get it back. Uh, President Trump wanted to make America great again, and he did. And now we're going to have to repair the damage that's been done already in this country. We have a phrase in Congress because we usually are very, very short on time when we're allowed to speak, and where we'll say, I want to associate myself with my colleagues' comments. Well, I want to associate myself with all of my colleagues' comments. They've all made great comments. I particularly want to say something about what uh, Congressman Murphy said. He said we have a very strong delegation, and that is absolutely true. Uh, most people in Washington will tell you in a um, colloquial way that the North Carolina delegation punches above its weight. Um, we are spread out on different committees. We have very responsible positions on different committees, and we work very hard together. As Greg says, we work together as a team, and we are working for the entire state. But we are all optimistic, again, about taking back the House. But as I said in my comments earlier this morning, we cannot do that without you. We need your help. You've always been there for us. And I always say, we're standing on your shoulders. We're the ones who are out there in the limelight. But nothing gives me more of a boost than to go out to an executive committee meeting or a district uh, meet, executive committee meeting or a district convention and to be with the folks who make this country great every day because you're there. You're, you're at your churches, you're at the fire departments, you're at the clubs, uh, you're doing scouts. You are doing what needs to be done. And we're not going to let the far left take this country away from us. We're just not going to let them do it. We tried to warn the American people what would happen. Many listened, North Carolina listened, North Carolina listened big time, but we know we lost other states. So we've got to double down in 22. We've got to take back the house, take back a seat or two in North Carolina, and then we've got to help our neighbors in other states. We've got to add some seats to the legislature, which is doing a fantastic job. So I also want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, Thank you for what you got to do day after day after day at the county level. And I want to ask you for your prayers. We all need to have your prayers. Pray for our country. Pray for the leaders. Pray for us. And pray that God will give us wisdom and strength to keep the fight up. And pray that for yourself because we're in the fight for the life of this country. And do not be dissuaded from that. So God bless you all for being here. Thank you for what you do. And may God continue to bless the United States of America.
as our country saw COVID coming down the tracks. And we saw a public policymaker say, we need to figure out what we're doing. We saw expert after expert after expert say, you have to shut down your economy. You have to shut down your economy, keep your kids home from school, and everybody has to wear a mask. We're not sure what the science says, but that's what we think is the right thing to do. There was one governor in the United States who said, we are going to look at the science, we are going to evaluate the science, and we are going to trust both the science and the people of the great state of South Dakota. There is one governor who took unrelenting pressure to back off from that. And she did not do so because she is a leader. When we talked about who we wanted to bring here to the North Carolina Convention, knowing that this is going to be the biggest convention that we've ever held, I got one answer over and over and over. Will you please bring Governor Kristi Noem here to North Carolina? Ladies and gentlemen, I am very happy to introduce you to South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Good afternoon. How are you all doing? All right, let's be honest. You people had no idea who I was a year ago. Right? Yeah, the first time you heard my name was because the liberals were busy kicking me in the head for all the decisions I was making in South Dakota, right? Right? Rachel Maddow, Elizabeth Warren, all talking about how I was irresponsible, I was reckless, I was a denier. But I want you to know something, that my people are happy. And they're happy because they're free. They're free and their freedoms were protected this last year. So I want to thank you so much for inviting me to be here with you and to share with you a little bit of my thoughts on the direction of this country. I'm going to share with you a little bit of uh, how I made my decisions this last year. But in order for you to understand how I made those decisions, I think you need to understand a little bit about me and my background as well. So is that okay if I tell you a little bit of my story? Okay, great. And by the way, I love Virginia Fox. You guys send amazing people to Washington, D.C. So I want to thank you. You elect really bad governors, by the way. But, really bad governors, but you've got fantastic people in Washington, D.C. But Virginia Fox is one of the first people that I met when I first got elected to Congress. And I was kind of a little scared of Virginia. She was tough, and everybody told me she will tell you exactly what she thinks when she talks to you. And I said, okay, I'll be ready for it. And I remember one day we hadn't really had a conversation, and I walked past Virginia. I'd been in meetings for a long period of time, and she, we walked past each other in a crowded hallway, and um, all of a sudden I heard, Christy! And I turned around and Virginia was looking at me and she said, go comb your hair. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I went and I combed my hair, but I loved that. I absolutely loved that. Because don't you sometimes need somebody to tell you that, hey, go comb your hair. You know, get that, 
black thing out of your teeth or you've got lipstick all over your face or whatever. You need somebody like that in your life, and that's Virginia. Um, we became dear, dear friends. We went to Bible study together every single week, and I got she shares her heart with me, um, and I share my heart with her, and you have elected a tough woman who's doing this job for the right reasons, and she spends so much time writing personal handwritten notes to people and working on policy. I think every night I was still working in my office at 11.30 at night, Virginia was working later. And so um, I've got so many friends that you send in your delegation. Um, Richard is fantastic. You've got Ted, Mark, gosh, Madison, David. I mean, all of them. Just thank you for doing that. Because when I was in Congress, South Dakota only gets one representative in the House. So I ran seven statewide races in eight years. Um, and when you get to Washington, D.C., and you're the only representative from your state, it's a little bit lonely. You, know, you don't have a delegation that you can go to and talk to about state issues and stuff. So I always was building a coalition on whatever issue I was working on. With ag issues, there was a certain group I would work with. with on other issues, there was you know, women's issues, we do different stuff. And by the way, there's no women's issues, okay? Can we just take that off the table right now? There's no women's issues in this country. What there is, is a woman's perspective on every issue, on every single one. But anyways, it was, it was a little bit different. I got to know everybody in the House because I was always working with other delegations all the time. The one advantage to be the, being the only one from your state is that my delegation was always in a unanimous position. We always voted the same. And I was always right. So that was actually a fantastic part of the job. But I do have my daughter, Kennedy, here with me today. She's the only family member that could come. Step, oh, she's, she's back here because she's working too. This is Kennedy. We were in Arkansas last night, and I forgot to introduce her. Yes, the poor forgotten middle child, right? Does, how many of you are middle children? Have been, yes, you, your hardship in life, I understand. I'm a middle child too. But Kennedy's down living in Nashville. She's getting her MBA at Belmont. So, But she's with me this weekend traveling, and I'm enjoying that. Okay. Listen, one thing we learned in 2020 is that leadership has consequences. All you had to do was look from state to state to see the difference of what happened to families and businesses based on what kind of leadership that they had at the state level. You look at Republican-run states, and they did much, much better than Democrat states. And you here lived with the consequences of the actions that your governor took. I'm so sorry. I am going to help you get a new governor. I will help you get a new governor. You know, ever since I was a little girl, all I wanted to do was to be a farmer and a rancher with my dad. My dad was tough. He was a cowboy. Um, he was the kind of guy that woke you up every morning by yelling up the stairs, get up. More people die in bed than anywhere else. <laughs> I don't even know if that's true, but... And he worked all the time. That's all we did as kids. We farmed a lot of acres, thousands of acres. We had cattle, um, had a lot of different businesses going. In fact, it could get to the end of harvest season. We could get done combining the last field of corn at 2 o'clock in the morning, and he'd say, Christy, go catch the horses. Let's head to the mountains to go elk hunting for two weeks. And that's what we would do. 
That was our vacations. So I loved it. He was my best friend. When I went to college, my dad was killed in an accident on our farm. He was 49 years old at the time, uh, and it was absolutely devastating for our family. We were farming about 10,000 acres. Actually, the day he died, he had just rented another 2,500 acres. We had a cow-calf operation, feedlots where we backgrounded our calves and had other businesses. But my sister was living in Georgia at the time. My brother was living in Oklahoma. My younger brother was still in high school. So I was the one who ended up quitting college and coming home and taking over the businesses. All I did was work because I didn't know what else to do. And I wished that I had my dad every single day to ask him questions of what I should do. I remember that months, just several months after he passed away, uh, I got a letter in the mail from the IRS that said we owed death taxes. Now we, like most small family businesses or ranchers or farmers, we had land, we had machinery, we had cattle, but we didn't have any money in the bank. And all of a sudden I found out about these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that I owed the federal government because we had a tragedy in our family. And it made me mad. I could not figure out how we could have a law that would double tax a family at a time when their family was already tragically disrupted by a loss. So I just started showing up at meetings, talking about policy. Uh, started a hunting lodge to make more money off of our land so that we could figure out a way to pay off those taxes. My mom bought a restaurant because she thought that would be fun. I, I don't know if any of you own restaurants but that might have been my least favorite business. That was hard, hard, hard work. Um, but it took us 10 years to pay off those taxes. And it made it very difficult for us to keep our family business. People ask me all the time, Chrissy, how'd you get into government and politics? It was that experience. I realized we needed more normal, everyday people showing up and weighing in on policy. Got passionate about tax reform. Uh, at the time, our senator was the majority leader in the U.S. Senate, Tom Daschle. Do you remember him? So I started showing up at all of his meetings wherever he was, talking about tax policy, talking about um, treating people fairly and the government staying out of people's way. I ended up running for the legislature and one got to the legislature. I was there about a week and I realized that the leadership controlled everything. If I had a bill that they liked, they would send it to a committee of jurisdiction or a committee they knew they had the votes. It would pass out a committee, make it to the floor, and they'd support it over to the other house and potentially make it to the governor's desk. If I had a bill they did not like, they had a specific committee they could send that bill to where they knew they had the votes to kill it. And I decided if I was gonna be away from all of my businesses, my husband, my kids, that I was going to be as effective as I possibly could, so I decided to run for leadership. Got elected to be the assistant majority leader and worked on rewriting our property tax system in South Dakota, worked on policy that was important for our state, and then people kept asking me to run for Congress. I decided to run for Congress after people asked for two years. Uh, my husband and I finally said, you know what, maybe we should just run. Uh, if we lose, they'll leave us alone. Because <laughs> it was a tough race. Uh, it ended up being one of the top five races in the House that year. We had a blue dog Democrat that uh, was, had about a 70% approval rating. And she hadn't voted for Obamacare, the stimulus package. All she had done is vote for Nancy Pelosi. That was enough. I talked about Nancy all the time. And it worked. We won. I was in Congress and 
you know, wanted to do tax reform. I served on the Armed Services Committee, worked on NDAA authorizations. I worked on farm bills, important policy for the state. Was thrilled when President Trump came into office because I got the chance to be on the conference committee that put more money into people's pockets and created a fairer tax system in this country. Exactly everything I'd ever wanted to do, Donald J. Trump made possible. People ask me all the time, why do you love the president so much? I said, I love that man because he's the only politician that I've worked with that actually does what he says he's going to do, actually follows through on it. And he got up every single day and he fought for this country and he fought for people and he fought for you and me. And I appreciated that because I watch who's in the White House today and he is destroying this country absolutely destroying this country by what he's doing at the border, what he is doing with energy policy. I'm surprised you guys all found enough gas to get here today. <laughs> Unbelievable. 65% of your gas stations didn't have gas. I can't imagine what, that that happened in America this quickly. I knew it would be bad. I didn't know it would be this bad this quickly. But you look at their lack of support for Israel. Just, it's amazing to me to watch the different policy changes and the immediate effects on this country. So this president, and took away my fireworks at Mount Rushmore, I don't know if you've been paying attention to that. Yes. So we've got a lot of work to do. But when I was in Congress, I was thankful to have the chance to work on big policies. But I also realized when I looked that governors, governors are CEOs. Governors have the opportunity every single day to make decisions and immediately put them into place that impact families. And so I decided that I wanted to run for governor. Um, I ran for governor based on the fact that we could do things uh, like build strong families uh, and that we could be an example to the nation. That was my theme. I had no idea that South Dakota would get the opportunity to be an example to the nation because of a pandemic. But that's really when people first started to realize who we were. I believe that because we were small, we could do things that other states couldn't do. We could put in place pilot projects uh, and programs and prove that they really worked for people and created opportunity and success and really show the rest of the country that that would work. And so that's what I ran on, got elected, and I got sworn in in January of 2019. We went into legislative session, which is only 40 days long in South Dakota. It's actually fantastic when you're governor. They come in for a month, we work 20 hours a day, and then they all go home and the rest of the year, and it's quiet in the state capitol. But I got one day out of legislative session and a bomb cyclone hit the state of South Dakota. Had any of you heard of a bomb cyclone before? It's five feet of snow on the western half of the state, five inches of rain on the eastern half of the state on frozen ground, and my entire state flooded. 63 of my 66 counties were declared federal disaster areas. Some of those counties five times over in just the year of 2019. So all I dealt with was flooding the entire year, and I thought for sure 2020 is gonna be so much better. <laughs> we had two days left of our legislative session and we got our first COVID-19 cases in the state. Now I had done what every other governor in this country did. 
I had studied the virus as it was in other countries, learned about it, talked to my health experts, watched as it hit other states. I had opened my emergency operations center in January, so we were prepared when the first cases came. I think what happened is that while I was doing what other governors were doing is that I took it a step further. I spent a lot of time talking to my general counsel. I spent a lot of time talking to constitutional attorneys. I really wanted to understand what authority I had as a governor and what authority I didn't have as a governor. Because I believe that when, when leaders overstep their authority, especially in a time of crisis, that that's when we break this country. That's when we break this country. And I didn't want to be the governor to do that. So for instance, in South Dakota, we never once closed a single business the entire time. In fact, I didn't even define what an essential business was in our state because I don't believe governors have the authority to tell you that your business isn't essential. We never issued a shelter in place never mandated anything such as masks. What I did is I stood up in front of my people and I said, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna let you use personal responsibility to make the best decisions for your family's health, but I'm also gonna give you flexibility. I'm gonna give you the ability to take care of your employees and your customers, and we're gonna work through this together. It's going to be challenging, but we can do this if we all work together. I didn't focus on cases because the science of the virus told us we couldn't stop the virus. We could slow it down, but what our real goal was was to make sure we had enough hospital capacity to take care of people should they need it if they got sick and needed that kind of elevated care. Now, Dr. Fauci told me that I would need 10,000 hospital beds on my worst day. On our very worst day, we had 600 people in the hospital. I don't know if you've heard this before, but Dr. Fauci is wrong a lot. <laughs> a lot. So we got through it together. We held some incredible events, let people make flexible decisions for their family's health, and we kept our businesses open. Let me tell you how we're doing today. South Dakota has the least amount of hours lost by employees of any other state in the entire nation. The least amount of wages lost by anybody of any other state in the nation. We have the lowest amount of businesses that closed during the pandemic out of any other state in the country. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the nation at 2.8% in our state. In fact, when President Trump offered those elevated unemployment benefits, I said to the president, thank you for the flexibility, but we don't want it. People in South Dakota, they want to work. And, and even at that point in time, it was interesting because when I made that announcement, within one week, I cut my unemployment claims in half, which means the people who were on unemployment said, okay, I guess it's time to go back to work now, and they did. We have... We have the fastest growing GDP rate in the nation. Now the next closest to us is Texas. Their GDP rate at the end of 2020 was 7.5%. South Dakota's was 
we have thousands of people moving to our state, hundreds and hundreds of businesses coming into South Dakota. I could triple the size of my economic development department right now, and I couldn't answer the phone for all the businesses that want to move to our state. Uh, we have historic revenues coming in. Now, I don't have an income tax in South Dakota. I don't have a corporate or personal income tax. No personal property tax. What funds state government is a four and a half cent sales tax. That's the taxes that we have. And my legislature this year, the big battles were over what to do with the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that they didn't anticipate that they were going to have because everybody who wanted a little bit of freedom in 2020, they came to South Dakota and they spent time in our state and thousands of them stayed, moved their families, put their kids in classrooms, and recognized how much they appreciated a government that respected them. So here's the story. We have talked for years about what conservatives believe. We've talked for years about we as Republicans believe in our platform and what it is. In South Dakota, we just did it. We just did it and we proved that it works. We proved that it opens up opportunities for families, that it creates stronger communities that work together. We didn't have the riots and violence that happened in so many other cities in South Dakota. People worked together to get through the challenging year. They grew closer together and our economy is booming. We set historic visitation numbers for people in our state. We sold a historic number of hunting licenses, fishing licenses. We have so many people coming into South Dakota, you couldn't hardly rent a car for 10 or 12 months in our state because so many people were there and so many people stayed. Our housing market has gone crazy because people want to be there. So this is what we need to talk about as Republicans, as conservatives. No longer do we have to stand up and just point to statistics and data and facts and say what would happen if we were in charge. You have a unique opportunity because in 2020, you had the perfect example of what can happen when you have good leadership, Republican leadership. And you have the perfect example of what happens when you have bad leadership and what Democrat leadership can do and how it can devastate people, their lives, their families, their businesses, and their way of life for generations to come. If we don't tell those stories, then shame on us. Because right now, the American people are hungry. They're hungry for something that gives them hope. And what gives them hope is the Republican Party because Democrat leadership has failed them and never failed them as greatly as it did in 2020. So I'm gonna ask you to do three things for me. I'm gonna tell you a story and then ask you to do three things if you will, okay? Back in 1773, there was a young man who was named Nathan Hale. Have any of you heard of Nathan Hale before? You know, he was a young man who graduated from Yale with honors. In 1775, his five brothers signed up to fight for the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War. And just a couple of months later, Nathan himself signed up as well. It was interesting because he quickly rose through the ranks and was promoted because he was recognized for his leadership skills and his courage and how people just naturally followed him. General Washington was leading the fight of the Continental Army right then in the war and frankly, they were losing. They had learned that there was about to be a British Army invasion in Manhattan, and if they didn't win that battle, 
potentially the Continental Army was going to lose the war. So what General Washington did is he brought all of his troops together, and he stood in front of them, and he said, I need one volunteer, one person that will go in undercover behind enemy lines and gather intelligence so that we can be strategic and win this battle when the British try to take over Manhattan. Out of all those troops and men standing there, only one person stepped forward to volunteer to be that spy, and it was Nathan Hale. He disguised himself as a Dutch school teacher. He went in undercover behind enemy lines and was gathering information from the enemy, relaying it out to the general to give the Continental Army the information that they needed when his identity was discovered. He was quickly captured, brought before the leadership, and condemned to die, sentenced to hang. Historians still write about that situation, talking about how incredible it was that throughout that whole process of being behind enemy lines, being captured, being sentenced, and brought before those who would end his life, the composure that Nathan Hale had, the dignity that he had, that he never once compromised General Washington and his fellow brothers in the Continental Army, that he stayed true and kept what he knew to himself. His very last words, as reported, were that I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. So listen, folks. We don't know what hard is. We just don't. I don't believe that one man can save this country, but I believe that we all have our part. I watched people in 2020 roll over and give up their freedoms. The media used fear to control people. And the left used fear to promote their agenda. They proved to us that they will do anything, do anything to get their agenda put into place. And I watched people across this country just roll over and give up their freedom of assembly. The government told me I can't meet with anybody anymore. Okay. I watched people say the government tells me I can't go to church, okay, they took away their freedom of religion. People gave up their freedom of speech. We have done a poor job educating people about the protection of these freedoms. Throughout the pandemic, I did press conferences every single day, and I would give updates, but some of those press conferences changed because I realized I couldn't just say what I was deciding, I had to tell them why I was making that decision. I gave a whole press conference just on freedom. I gave another press conference just on the Constitution and what rights it protects and what role we shouldn't be looking to the government to do. I did a whole press conference on people turning off the news, getting some perspective, going for a walk, spending time with their family. We need to educate people about what has made this country so special for hundreds of years. Our founding fathers were flawed. Absolutely they were. But they led our country through challenging times, and we can learn something from every single one of their stories. And they gave us the greatest gift that was ever made in the history of mankind, and that is this country and our freedoms. We need to teach our kids that honest and true history. We need to make sure that they understand the value of the Constitution and the foundation that it gives us for our way of life. So there's three things I want to ask you to do. 
The first one is to say yes. Now this world's gonna tell you you're too busy, that you've got too much going on, that you can't sign up to do more things, and I'm gonna tell you the exact opposite. We need you to say yes. We need you to go support that candidate. We need you to show up at that meeting and tell your story. We need you to run for office if that is what is placed on your heart or somebody asks you to do. I remember when my first daughter was being born, um, they had a baby shower for me at a lady's house from our church. And they had all these ladies in the room sitting around and they went around the room and uh, had everybody give me, the new mother, some advice. How many of you have been to a baby shower? Okay. Okay, can I tell you something? I went to a baby shower the other day and there was men there. So when did that happen? It was, you know, and it wasn't as fun. So it was a really bad idea to start inviting men to baby showers. So listen, men, if you get invited to a baby shower, don't go, okay? Just stay home. It was... Anyways, when they were going around that baby shower, it got to my grandmother, who is a German woman. She was very tough and stern. And what she said when I got to her is she said, Christy, say yes as much as you possibly can, because so many times as a mom, you have to say no. And that shocked me that she would say something like that. And I decided I wanted to be a mom who said yes. So I didn't want to be the mom that was constantly telling my kids no. So if my kids wanted to jump in a mud puddle on Easter Sunday in their dress clothes, we would jump in a mud puddle. If they wanted to race down the driveway, we raced down the driveway. But I also applied it to the rest of my life. I decided that when people were going to ask me to do something, that I would say yes to it, that I would go. That's how I ended up serving in the legislature. That's how I got involved in tax reform discussions. So many of you are saying no to things that you should be doing. You think somebody else should be doing it. You don't think that you would be good at it. I am a farmer, and now I spend a lot of my time working on policy and giving interviews and giving speeches. I wasn't prepared for any of that. I just started showing up. You may find you have a gift or a talent that you didn't know that you had. You may meet somebody at that meeting that will change your life forever. Could be your next business partner, your next mentor. Somebody that makes all the difference in the world for you, your family, your county, your state, or your community, or your country. So say yes to those opportunities when they come. The second thing is, is that this country is addicted to being offended. We love to be offended, don't we? By everything everybody says, oh my gosh, I can't believe they said that, that's terrible. You know, get over yourselves. Okay. We just need to get over yourselves. I had a pastor years ago tell me, Christy, people are going to throw offenses out all the time at you. You're the one who decides if you want to pick it up and carry it around with you. But then you're the one carrying the burden. You have the opportunity to make a decision each and every time to just walk by that offense and leave it lay there and let it go. So I need you to get over yourselves. Because there are people in this country that we have quit talking to. We have gotten angry and emotional and we just wrote them off and said that they're a lost cause, and we quit talking to them. I need you to stop. I need you to put the emotion and the anger aside. I never made a good decision when I made it out of anger or out of emotion. And walk up to people that you haven't talked to in a long time 
and have a conversation with them. And the first thing you need to do is listen. Listen to them, because nobody in this country feels like anybody's listening to them anymore. And then share with them the statistics or the facts or the stories of really the consequences of leadership. So number two is to get over yourself. Number three is to be happy. We woke up this morning in the United States of America. We woke up better off. We woke up better off than 99% of the people in the world just because you woke up here. People will be drawn to us by our optimism, by wanting to be around us because they need hope. They need somebody who understands that while we've got incredible challenges, we're still amazingly blessed to be in the United States of America. And we need to remind them of that. So those are the three things that I need you to do. Number one, I need you to say yes. Something's going to make you uncomfortable that people are going to ask you to do, and I don't even want you to think about it. Just say yes and go do it. The worst thing about being in an elected official, and I tell this to people openly all the time, is asking for help. It's hard. When you're used to making decisions and running businesses, it's hard to go ask people to come volunteer or financially support you or come alongside and help you. But we have to do it. I tell people all the time, I promise I will be a good investment. I will win. I will do it. But I can't do it by myself. I need your help. There will be people who will come up to you and ask for your help. Walk beside them. And it's hardest on the families as well. So support their families. And do what you can to make sure that we approach this next election cycle different than we did in the past. Number two, stop being offended by everything and writing people off. Open up conversations. They may be liberals. They may be people that you work with. They may be Republicans in this room that you quit talking to because you were mad about one issue. Get over yourself, okay? Let's come together and let's focus on defending this country and protecting it. The last thing is show them the joy that you have in your heart because you know that what we believe as conservatives is truly what brings opportunity and success and builds stronger families and is what America was founded on. And what we're talking about today is still the greatest blessing that we've ever had the chance to be a part of. So be optimistic, be happy, and spread hope. This country desperately needs it. So thank you so much for letting me be with you today. God bless you. God bless North Carolina, and God bless South Dakota and the United States of America. Have a great day. Wow. Check out this crowd. This is a record-setting crowd. I love it. You know, when Donald Trump came down the escalator in 2015 and announced that he was going to run for president, that he was going to win the presidency, he said that he was going to unleash the American economy. And after he won that election, we saw record low unemployment among Hispanics, record low unemployment among uh, blacks, record low unemployment among women, and the most robust co economy that we've seen since the end of World War II.
Promises made, promises kept. When he campaigned, Donald Trump said he was going to rebuild our military. He signed the two largest pay increases for our soldiers and had massive increases in our defense spending. Promises made, promises kept. He said he was going to put conservative judges on the federal courts. Over 300 lifetime conservative nominations, including three on the United States Supreme Court. Promises made, promises kept. He said he would protect our border. He built the border wall. He beefed up ICE. He beefed up Border Patrol. He stemmed the tide of illegal immigration that Joe Biden has unleashed again. Promises made, promises kept. And Donald Trump said that he was going to put America, fifth president of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump. Now, I'm really, really excited as I look across this room, and I want you all to know that this is the single largest fundraising event that we have ever had in the history of the North Carolina Republican Party. And we've had such a successful convention, and I am so excited to introduce to you our president, Donald J. Trump.
much to Lee. Thank you, Lee. Wow. He's been so great. And Michael, thank you very much. And congratulations on your re-election today as chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party. We love the state. Uh, you've done a great job, Michael, and we thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I love you, too. I love you, too. It's great to be back in Greenville with so many proud North Carolina patriots who love our country, support our military, respect our police, honor our flag, and always put America first. We don't put America second. As we gather tonight, our country is being destroyed before our very own eyes. Crime is exploding. Police departments are being ripped apart and defunded. Can you believe that? Defund our, is that good politics? Defund our police? Number one, it's bad for our country, but think of it. Defund our police. You know, I've long said they're poly they're vicious, they're violent, they in many cases hate our country, and they have bad policy. Now, the bad news from our standpoint, they stick together. They don't have some of the people like we have, where they go on their own and they do what they have to, they stick together. And that's the one thing they have. They stick together. But their policy is so bad. And uh, we're going to have a tremendous 2022, just like we did, frankly, 2020. Think of it. More votes than any sitting president in the history of the United States, by far. We had a great election. Bad things happened, but we had a great election. But you look at our border is wide open. Illegal immigration is skyrocketing at a level that we've never seen before. And this is over a period of a few months. Drugs are pouring in. Gas prices are soaring. Our industries are being pillaged by foreign cyber attacks. That's a lack of respect for our country and for our leaders. And speaking of our leaders, they're bowing down to China. America is being demeaned and humiliated on the world stage. Our freedom is being overtaken by left-wing cancel culture. And the Biden administration is pushing toxic, critical race theory and illegal discrimination into our children's schools. Now, you tell me, we take this? Joe Biden and the Socialist Democrats are the most radical left-wing administration in history. Even Bernie Sanders can't believe it. He said, I can't believe this happened. This is worse than I ever was. And I don't know if they even know what the hell they're signing. Somebody's drawing these documents and putting it in. It's getting signed. It's a disgrace what's happening to our country. The survival of America depends upon our ability to elect Republicans at every level, starting with the midterms next year. We have to get it done. We have to get it done. We have no choice, actually. We have to get it done. Together, we're going to defund our freedoms. You just uh, take a look at what's happening. We have to defend our, our borders. We have to do all of these things. And the cancel culture, the defunding culture, the defending culture, and they defend the wrong things, we're not going to let it go any longer. We're going to stand up for our values. We have to stand up for our values. And we're going to take back our country, and we're going to take it back at a level that is very, very good for our country. And it's good for our citizens, because we can't allow bad things to happen to our country. 
and bad, bad things are happening to us, perhaps like never before. You'll be seeing what goes on, and perhaps like never before. With us this evening are many outstanding North Carolina Republican leaders who are fighting right by our side, including one of the strongest and bravest new voices in the Republican Party. He's been a great supporter of mine, and I'm a great supporter of his, your incredible Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. Mark, stand up, Mark. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. We're also joined by some of your terrific representatives in Congress, and uh, I think Virginia Fox is here, who I just endorsed. Where's Virginia? She's around here someplace. Virginia, thank you very much. Thank you, Virginia. I thought, Virginia, you should have a better seat than that. I'm sorry. A great guy and a friend of mine, a tremendous supporter, David Rouser. David, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dan Bishop, right from the beginning. Been so good. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Great job. We had a big victory that night, didn't we, Dan? Huh? He said, I don't know if he's going to win. He won. He won big. Richard Hudson. Richard. Thank you. Great job, Richard. Great job. Great job. Somebody I've gotten to know very well, and he is a handsome sucker. Where's Madison? Madison Cawthorn. Where is Madison? Where's our Madison? Oh, thank you, Madison. Thank you. What a great guy. What a good future you've got. Where the hell is Madison? Thank you, Madison. Great job. Thank you very much. If I had a face like him, I would have been president 20 years earlier. 20 years earlier, Madison. Thank you very much. Great job. Thank you. Greg Murphy. Where's Greg? Where's Greg? Thank you, Greg. You're doing a really great job. We're proud of you. We're proud of you. And a friend of mine and somebody that's really been incredible, respected by everybody, Congressman Ted Budd. Where's Ted? Where's Ted? Good job, Ted. Good job. And here, as well, are two people that you may know of. Actually, I probably like her better because she was a supporter of mine before he was. People don't know that. Deb Meadows, stand up. Stand up, Deb. But we have to say, Deb, he wasn't far behind. It wasn't like, you know, many, many months. No, he was, he had somebody else in mind, but he switched over very quickly. I don't know if he had a choice, right, Deb? Mark Meadows, everybody, real great guy. And with the spirit and energy and commitment of everyone in this room and the voters all across this state, 2022 is going to be a banner year for North Carolina Republicans. You know, they said this state was, if you look back 10 years ago, Michael, they said this state was finished. It was not going to be a Republican state at all, and they had elected a governor, and it really looked bad. And then these guys, some of them that I just announced, but others also, we all got together, and uh, you've never been in a stronger position. And now you're going to have another senator. We just elected a wonderful friend of ours, and uh, Tom is uh, going to be great. 
I think Tommy, she got off to a little rocky start <laughs> with Protect Bob Mueller. But you know what? He, uh, he flipped in the other direction totally, and he's been, uh, he's been terrific. And he had a great race. He ran a great race. He really did. And he had my total support. And uh, he called me just a little while ago to tell me, uh, enjoy the state, because I love the state. I love being in this state. But I just want to say that this was going to be a Democrat state. And here we are, and uh, we're really dominating when you look at everything that's happened. So congratulations. It's really great. To you, congratulations. I think we're going to gain two or even three U.S. House seats. We're going to take over. If you look over the House, to get rid of Nancy Pelosi. Remember, they stick together on an impeachment hoax. Not one Democrat, not one, voted against. Well, actually, we had one that came over to our side, who was a terrific person, actually. But you take a look, and uh, they didn't want to do that. But they just do it a little bit differently. They play very tough, very dirty, and we just can't let it happen. We're going to win North Carolina's all-important U.S. Senate race. And we're going to lay the groundwork for making sure that Republicans once again carry the great state of North Carolina in a, a number, a year, that I look very much forward to, 2024. We're going to do numbers like you've never seen before. So many things are happening right now. But they're, uh, we're going to do things like you've never ever seen before. I stand before you today confident that the people of North Carolina will decisively reject Joe Biden and the radical Democrats, the war on the American worker, the American family, and the American nation. And I have to tell you that I have a very uh, special person. You know, she's been uh, — I love my family. I love my family. And I happen to love this particular young man that she's married to. He's a very tall person, by the way, but not as tall as Barron. <laughs> Barron is six foot seven. You believe it? And he's 15. And Eric is short. He's only six foot six. But we love our Eric and we love them all. They're all great. And, uh, he is married to a very special woman, Laura, and I'd like to have her. You know, she was born in this particular state. She loves this particular state. And maybe I'd like to ask Laura Trump to come up and say a few words. Laura, please, come on up. really quickly, and I'll keep this brief, but Donald Trump is 2-0 in the state of North Carolina, folks. How about it? Not bad. And I got to thank all of you because I promised my father-in-law that we would win this state for him, and we won it in two elections. So thanks to all of you. But I really, you guys know, I was born and raised in this state. I absolutely love the state of North Carolina. My parents, Bob and Linda, are here with my brother Kyle. They drove in from Wilmington to be here tonight. My brother graduated from ECU right here in Greenville. He's a pirate. 
And this, this state truly made me the person that I am today. I love this state so much, I named my daughter Carolina, okay? And I don't want any of you UNC fans to get any ideas because y'all know I'm Wolfpack for life, all right? I want to set that one straight. Now, you may have heard a rumor that I have been considering possibly running for a Senate seat here in North Carolina. So I have been considering it, and it's a big decision in case nobody knew. It's a very big deal, and look, it's something I did a lot of soul searching, a lot of thinking, talking with my father-in-law, my parents, my husband, Eric, and because of the values my parents instilled in me, they taught me that when you do something, you give 100%. That is the only way to operate. And because of my two kids who are very young, one and three, Carolina and Luke, it is going to be very hard for me to enter this Senate race right now. But I am saying no for now, not no forever, just so you know. And I came here tonight with my father-in-law because there is a very special person who is going to do an amazing job as your next senator from the state of North Carolina that he is going to announce tonight here in this room. And I can promise you this, just because my name is not on the ballot does not mean I am not fighting every step of the way with you here in North Carolina, because if we're being honest, this is so much bigger than a Senate seat. It's about the future of America. We have to fight for our conservative values. We have to have a person in that Senate seat who represents North Carolina and is going to lead this country in the right direction. So I wanna say thank you to everybody. I had so much support and so many people that were so sweet and, and poured out so much love for me with the thought of, of me possibly running. So again, no for now, not no forever. At the right time, I would absolutely love to come back and consider running for something here in my home state because I love it dearly. And before I turn it back over to my father-in-law, here's what I want to say. We are 2-0, and but what do you say we go 3-0, and guys? Let's do it. I love you guys. Thank you. Oh, those polls, if you believe in those polls, Laura. But, you know, she also explained, I love my family, I love your son, I love those beautiful children, and I have to take care of them. And uh, there's something very refreshing about that. I don't hear that from everyone. <laughs> Sadly, I hear a lot of the opposite, actually. But uh, that's why you're such a special part of the family, because uh, you look at the numbers and you look at the polls and the love that this state has for you, it's incredible. So uh, thank you. And I've been putting a little pressure. I said, make your decision, please, because we have to pick somebody. And what I don't want is I don't want a lot of people joining a race that have been big Trump supporters, and then I have to go with somebody, because there's somebody in this room that I think is very special. Somebody that I've worked with, always been with me, always been with Mark and Deb and all of us. He's uh, a man that uh, hasn't been pushing me at all, unlike some of the others that are running that won't win. They won't win. You know, we have another race after this one. This man's a great politician, but more importantly, he's somebody that loves the state of North Carolina. He loves the country. 
And I'm going to do it now because, again, I don't want a lot of people running, and then they're going to be disappointed. And in many cases, they're friends of mine. You know, they're great people. They're thinking about running. They want to run. And they wanted to wait, frankly, till Laura made her decision, because she would have been tough. She would have been tough. And she's uh, very outstanding. But I think she did the right thing for her and for her family. But this gentleman is going to be your next senator. He's going to be somebody that you're going to be so proud of. He will fight like hell. Would you agree with that, Mark? Well, he will fight like nobody fights. And a lot of you don't know him that well, but you're going to know him probably within about two minutes. Ted Budd, please come up. Please come up. Please come up, Ted. I am giving him my complete and total endorsement. We're going to work with him. We're going to campaign with him. You can't pick people that have already lost two races. You can't pick people that have already lost two races. And to do not stand for our values. So I'm going with Congressman Ted Budd, complete and total endorsement. Come on up, Ted. Please. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> wow, Mr. President, thank you so much. You know, and, and go back to 2016. I was in a 17-way race and won, this, won that primary and got here. I was a business guy that never run for office. I think maybe you had an 18-way primary, right? And you, 18-way. We came in and we fought for the forgotten men and women of America. And Laura, I think you're out there. Your father-in-law and you, you fought for me in 2018. The Dems outspent me two to one in the worst Republican district. And with your help, Mr. President and Laura, you coming in to help, we won. In 2020, Laura, we fought together. We fought to help Tom Tillis win. We fought to keep the North Carolina legislature. We fought for North Carolina judges. You're a heck of a teammate, and you'd be a heck of a senator. Mr. President, Laura, this means the world to me. Thank you. We got a lot of hard work ahead. So let's win this together, and let's get back to making America great again. Well, thank you very much, Ted. You know, honestly, he did not know about this until about uh, 15 minutes before I walked to the podium, and uh, he was uh, very uh, taken by it. And I have read this on numerous occasions, so I'm not saying it myself. Uh, the wonderful — that's a lot of media. That's good. Well, it's hard for them to cancel when you get great ratings, isn't it? You know, it's They may edit that out. They don't want to have that. They don't like that. They may have to edit that out, Ted, but that's okay. They don't like those endorsements. But uh, we've been very, very successful, literally hundreds to one, hundreds to two in terms of the endorsements and the, the power of the endorsement, because people respect that I do want to make America great again. We were doing that. We were doing that at a level that nobody's ever seen and putting America first ahead of China and ahead of all of these countries and people know 
that that's where we were. And before the pandemic came into our shores, we were doing numbers. The history, in history, there's never been anything like it. Unemployment for everybody, for every group, everybody was the best it's ever been. We're up to 160 million people. No, we were never even close to a number like that. And then we had this horrible thing come in from China. And uh, we got that one right, too, by the way. Do you notice? You see what's going on over the last. It's called the lab. That was an easy one. Wuhan. But uh, you had this horrible problem come in. And uh, like every other country, we went down. And they were saying how well India was. Look how well India is doing. Well, India is not doing too well now. And we've done an incredible job. And uh, most importantly, with the vaccine coming up with it. But we've done an incredible job. And uh, so many things have happened. And we built the economy not once. We built it twice. Think of it. Because we built it, we had the highest stock market ever, the best job numbers. And then we had to regroup. We had to do a lot of things. We bought we, — we became the ventilator factory of the world. We were making them for everybody. And we had uh, — our cupboards were bare. The federal cupboards were bare, and the state cupboards were bare. And we've done a tremendous job. We never got the kind of credit that we deserve for that. One thing we do get the credit for from everybody, even the other side, although they try and disparage it as much as possible, was the vaccine, the coming up with the vaccine. But we did something else that people don't talk about. And I made a bet, and I shouldn't call it a bet because maybe you say speculation as opposed, but it was somewhat of a bet. We bought billions and billions of dollars worth of vaccine and all forms of getting that vaccine into your body, the needles, the bottles, the whole thing. We bought millions and billions, actually, of dollars worth of the vaccine. And we saved a period of a year, maybe more. You wouldn't have the vaccine right now. This room would be empty because they would ask me to be here, and I would say, no, thank you. And you would say the same thing. This would be an empty room right now, and your state would be in a lot of trouble, and the country would be in a lot of trouble because you wouldn't have the vaccine until probably October and might have even been later than that. And one of the things I'm most proud about is we did the vaccine, developed the vaccine, and I pushed the FDA. They have never been pushed. Would you say, Mark Meadows, they have never been pushed like that? He was there at a lot of those meetings. Those were not nice meetings. They do not like me too much, that I can tell you. And frankly, the drug companies don't like me too much either because I did a thing called Favorite Nations where we have to pay whatever the lowest is in the world. That's what we have to pay. Nobody can believe I instituted that. If they leave it alone, you'll soon have the lowest drug prices that we've ever had by. But that doesn't mean that they like me. They spend millions of dollars against me, and that's okay. They have to do what they have to do. But we did things that nobody has ever done. I'm very proud of the biggest bet. This was maybe the greatest bet ever made in the history of the world because we saved a year. We bought billions of dollars of this vaccine before we even knew it worked. And uh, because of that, uh, we've all, most of you, I guess all of you, just about in one form or another, uh, you've had your shots or jabs, as they like to call it. I actually like the other word better. But you've, uh, We've, we've saved a lot of lives. We've saved all over the world. We've saved millions and millions of lives, and I'm very proud of it. And nobody can ever take it away from us, because that's something that's very, very special. And the people in this room are very, very special. The Biden administration, you know, the Biden administration seems to be putting America last. You look at these negotiations where so many bad things have happened. 48,000 jobs were lost by President Biden's day one rejection. 
of the Keystone XL pipeline. Why? For what reason did they do that? And if you like the environment, the pipeline is much better than railroad tracks, and it's much better than trucking. It's great. And they ended it on just about day one. 48,000 jobs. Not 8,000. They said 8,000. It's 48,000. Think of it. He rejected our pipeline. But he approved the Russian pipeline, which I had completely stopped going into Germany and all parts of Europe. So I stopped Russia. And I have a very good relationship with President Putin. But there's never been anybody as tough on Russia than I was. And you look at these horrible cyber attacks. You look at all of the things that are happening. Uh, we're in a different world than we were in just a few months ago. Yet there's no better example of Biden's failed agenda than the catastrophic, and you look at it, is what's going on on the southern border? I mean, is there anything that you've ever seen like what's going on on the southern border? And people are coming in from South America, Latin America, but they're coming in from the Middle East. They're coming in from all over. When I left office, we gave the new administration the most secure border in U.S. history. We had the most secure border in the history of our country. And that included drugs. That included human trafficking, which is a magnificently horrible and big business, mostly trafficking in women. And the numbers were down to levels that they hadn't seen in many, many years. And all they had to do is just leave it alone. Just leave it alone. If you leave it alone, it would have gotten better and better. And the fact that we built almost 500 miles of wall in just a few months, it would have been completed. It took two and a half years of litigation to get to build the wall. And what an impact it had. But it would have been completed, totally completed, in just a couple of months, and they stopped it. Now I understand they're starting it again. Uh, that one was just too easy. But wait till they find out what, wait till they, hey, wait till they see what those contractors are going to do to them. Well, you know, this is going to cost us five times more money now because we weren't prepared. You know, it's the old story. They're the greatest negotiators in the world. They may not have gone to the greatest business schools, but they're the greatest negotiators. But we negotiated historic agreements with Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador to stop illegal immigration. We ended asylum and asylum fraud. The fraud of, of what was going on at our border was unbelievable. We instituted rapid removals on the border, and that's really rapid. I call it one-day turnaround of criminals coming into our country, sending people home in record time. We have times that nobody ever heard of before. We ended catch and release. That's where you catch somebody. Could be a horrible criminal. You catch somebody, a rapist, a murderer. Could be a drug dealer, and we release them. It's called catch. We catch them and we release them into our country. Well, we didn't do that. We empowered ICE to do their jobs. ICE is incredible. The Border Patrol is incredible. By the way, your police force in North Carolina, I've gotten to know them very well. They are incredible. Thank you very much. A lot of them are here tonight. We cracked down on sanctuary cities, deported gang members by the thousands, and dealt a crippling blow to MS-13, who is, that's the most vicious gang of all, and we took them out of here by the thousands, thousands and thousands brought back to where they came. And those countries didn't want them back. 
And the little story, I said, well, what do you mean they don't want him back? They weren't taking him back. They didn't want him back. They sent him out. They didn't want him back. And I said, that's bad. And they told me that, sir, we can't take him. They won't let us land planes. They're putting other planes on the runway so we can't land planes. They won't take the buses. I say, how much do we pay those countries? Sir, we pay them $500 million a year. Oh, you do? Tell them we're not paying them anymore. And the next day, I got a call from all three countries. We'd love to have MS-13 back. We think they're wonderful people. We never had a problem. And now they blew that one, too. They blew that one, too. I'll never forget it. We'd love to have them back. It would be a great honor to take them back. Those runways opened up like you've never seen anything open up. After we instituted these policies, the number of illegal aliens coming across our border declined by an astounding 91%. But under Joe Biden, illegal crossings are up nearly 1,000% compared to the same period last year. They're emptying their prisons. They're sending murderers, drug dealers, human traffickers, and others just as bad to the United States. Let the United States take care of them. Remember, it's called America Last. In April alone, over 175,000 illegal aliens were apprehended and mostly released. You know where they were released, right? They were released into our country. And we saw the largest number ever of unaccompanied minors. We've never seen anything like it. If you just watch some of the semi-fair tell, you don't have to watch fair, semi-fair, they talk about it. Because I think they have no choice, and I think they're going to see it more and more. You don't see it too much on the evening news yet, but you're going to see it because they're destroying our country. But it is much worse than that, because there are at least 1,000 aliens who are simply getting away every single day, as the radical Democrats have intentionally, ruthlessly, and systematically dismantled the sovereign borders of the United States of America. We have people just walking into our country. Nobody knows who they are, where they're from. There's no vetting. There's no anything. And some of these people are very, very bad people. Much as I said on that beautiful morning when I came down with our future First Lady at the time, right, Melania, who sends her regards. But we came down that beautiful gold escalator in Trump Tower, and I made that statement, and people hated it. It turned out that my statement was very minor compared to the actual facts. It was very, very minor. It's another thing we were right about. Without a border, you cannot have a nation, certainly not a great nation. We fight for other countries' borders, but we don't fight for our own border. Think of it. We fight for other countries' borders, but not for our own. That changed under my administration, but now they're going back more rapidly than anyone ever thought possible. Nobody ever thought that they could do this kind of destruction to our country so quickly. Some of those executive orders that are signed are absolutely insane. Biden has halted wall construction, suspended removals and even removables, removals of just horrible, horrible people, stopped enforcement, shredded our groundbreaking, remain in Mexico. So we had that groundbreaking plan that took us a long time to get. Because Mexico, like the other countries, were taking advantage of the United States. Everybody was taking advantage of us. And we have an agreement. Stay in Mexico, as opposed to stay in the United States. 
And a lot of people weren't coming when they realized they had to stay in Mexico. So the enforcement was so much better. And it was getting to a level that nobody's ever seen. And then we finally hit that level. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. They turned America into a sanctuary for criminal aliens. And effectively, they were abolishing ICE through agency directives. What they've done to ICE and what they've done to our Border Patrol heroes is incredible. It's incredible. And these are some of the finest people you'll ever met. meet. I got to know so many of them, and they're among the finest people you'll ever, ever meet. It's true. They love our country. Despite the worst border crisis in history, we've had the smallest number of illegal alien removals ever recorded. 92% of illegal aliens we removed in 2020 had criminal records. you believe that? 90, over 90, and very substantially probably higher than that. I think around 92% had criminal records. And now they're all being set free and released back into your communities. They don't want to bring them back. And if they are back, they actually have a new policy that if we took them out, they're going to let them come back in. It's the most incredible thing I've ever heard. But the border is just the beginning of the Biden disasters. As you know, we handed the new administration the greatest economy in the history of the world. We passed massive tax cuts, the largest ever, larger than our great friend Ronald Reagan. Record regulation cuts, historic pro-American trade deals, and achieved American energy independence. How's your gasoline price doing? Actually, I guess uh, you were hit worse than any state, from what I understand, on the cyber attack. It's incredible. It's a lack of respect. After the pandemic began, we launched the fastest economic recovery on record. We produced three vaccines and numerous therapeutics to defeat the virus. You know, they don't talk about the therapeutics, but we came up with things that are incredible and I think extremely effective. All Joe Biden had to do was sit back and do nothing and it was taking off like a rocket ship. Nobody's ever seen it. Between the economy and all of the other things we did, the border. Instead, the economy is going to hell and inflation is going to cause a catastrophe in the near future. The New York Times, who I don't often quote, <laughs> just stated, a million jobs a month seemed within graphs not long ago. Think of it, a million jobs a month seemed within grasp. Not long ago, but now it looks like wishful thinking. Isn't that sad? And we would have done much better than that. But that's the New York Times saying it. Monthly jobs numbers have missed expectations the last two months in a row. And you saw what was released on Friday. They were devastating numbers, job numbers. Inflation is now at the highest level in 13 years and is going to go up very substantially. It's going to cost you a lot more. Imposing a stealth tax on hardworking Americans and especially on middle-income Americans. Biden re-entered the job-killing Paris Climate Accord, a terrible deal that is pro-China, pro-Russia, and anti-America, and will cost America trillions of dollars over the years. This is a deal that is so one-sided against us like practically no other deal. But they're all bad. But this one's a real beauty. But it sounds so nice, right? The Paris Environmental Accord. 
Gas prices have increased almost 71 percent since one year ago. Think of it. Democrats are now attempting to pass the largest tax hike in American history. And it will affect everybody. They're saying it's against the rich. It's against everybody. And a lot of the rich will take off to go to other countries. A lot of the companies that I brought back are going to leave and go back to other countries where they can not have to pay all of their profits out in taxes. They're talking about the biggest tax hike in history by far. They're also pushing a $2.25 trillion infrastructure bill. That's not infrastructure. It's the kind of things that you don't want. 9% looks like it might be infrastructure, but mostly it's not infrastructure at all. The Democrat legislation also includes an extreme plan to abolish single-family home zoning, which would obliterate your home values, increase crime, and destroy the suburbs, all to satisfy the far-left agenda of AOC, Bernie Sanders, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar, who's telling us how to run our country. She's had great experience. She comes from a country that's done a wonderful job running their country. Now she's telling us how to run our country. While Democrats push economic policies designed to punish American workers, Republicans must keep on fighting to protect, promote, and uplift the American worker who we cherish. And that begins with standing up to communist China. Last year, China inflicted an estimated $16 trillion of economic damage onto the United States with a virus that I call the China virus because I want to be accurate, that claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of our fellow citizens. And look at the world. Look at what happened to the world. It's not just us. It's the world. And had we not come up with a vaccine, you would have had a 1917 Spanish flu number. They lost, they say, up to 100 million people. You would have had those kind of numbers. You would have had numbers that uh, were just unthinkable. But because of what we've done as a nation, because of the speed that we came up with a vaccine, the world will not have that. Many places in the world are getting better. Even India today announced that they're starting to heal. The media, the Democrats, and the so-called experts are now finally admitting what I first said 13 months ago. The evidence demonstrates that the virus originated in a Chinese government lab. Couldn't say it. You couldn't say it. And Dr. Fauci, who I actually got along with, he's a nice guy. He's a great promoter, you know? Not a great doctor, but he's a hell of a promoter. He likes television more than any politician in this room. And they like television. But he's been wrong on almost every issue. And he was wrong on Wuhan and the lab also, very wrong. And we ended the payments. You know, they were started in 2014. And then uh, I can tell you, Mark Meadows came in, and I talked to him, and I, he saw what I saw. And I said, what the hell's going on? When did that start? started in 2014, and we ended it. Our administration ended it. But generally speaking, I went the opposite way of Dr. Fauci, what he was saying. For instance, Fauci said, do not close our borders to China or Europe. But I did it anyway. And months later, he said I made the right decision and saved 
thousands and thousands of lives. He said it was the right decision, but he did not want to close that border. I said, wait a minute, there's tremendous infection over there. We can't let this happen. And we closed it. And I think we saved hundreds of thousands of lives. You remember the number was 2.2 million people in our country who were expected to die. Fauci said powerfully at the beginning, no masks. You remember that? No, masks don't work, masks don't. And then he went into masks, and then he became a radical masker. I would call it, <laughs> if you have three, if you have four, get a pair of goggles also, ideally. And let's wear them for another five or six years. And But Fauci has perhaps never been more wrong than when he denied the virus and where it came from. The time has come for America and the world to demand reparations and accountability from the Communist Party of China. We should all declare within one unified voice that China must pay. They must pay. The United States should immediately take steps to phase in a firm 100 percent tariff on all goods made in China. You saw what was happening with our tariffs. In fact, you know, the Democrats were fighting the tariffs. Oh, we don't. Well, he hasn't taken those tariffs off. He doesn't want to. Billions and billions of dollars, 25 percent tariffs on China. Billions and billions of dollars is pouring in. And frankly, uh, if you raise them, a lot of things would happen to China. I think they'd stop building their military. I think a lot of companies would move back to the United States. And I'm not only talking about China, I'm talking about others. Because, you know, what China does is they'll sell through other countries. They're very ingenious. They're very smart. Had a great relationship with President Xi until, until the China virus came in. Then it was uh, real tough. We made a tremendous deal for the farmers. You know, farmers are doing better than they've ever done because of us, because of me, because of what we've done with our administration. Better than they've ever done. Look at wheat prices and virtually all prices. The farmers are doing the best. And one of the reasons is China is buying tremendous amounts. And they want to keep us happy. They want to keep me happy. I don't think they want to keep Biden happy. I don't think they care too much about Biden, to be honest. But they wanted to keep me happy. And they, are, they were investing with our farmers. They were buying so much of our product. And they continue to do so. We made a great deal. But after the virus came in, I just felt differently. It meant, you know, a trade deal with China didn't mean very much. It didn't mean to me. It was just a whole different. It was a whole different mindset. Does that make sense? Does it was? Some, I used to talk about the trade deal. I'd drive these guys crazy. That trade deal was great. Look at our farmers. They're starting to do great. You look at beef. You look at cattle. You look at all of the different things: corn, wheat. You look at it. What a great deal! When the virus came in, I don't even talk about the trade. This is the first time in a long time I've even mentioned the trade deal, and it's really been very beneficial. But it's so tiny compared to the devastation that's been caused. And we should reinvest 100 percent of all of that money that we collect from tariffs to help bring back jobs and factories from China and other places back to America and back to the great state of North Carolina, where they belong. You know, over the years, I've built lots of hotels and lots of things. And I used to buy my furniture from North Carolina. Uh, are you a furniture guy? Stand up. There's only one in the room, I think. Right? But I helped you a lot, right? Good. Thank you. It's great to have you.
And the, the quality was incredible. Now it's so much of it's made in China, right? So much. And we were stopping that. It was all stopping. And then we had to slow it down a little bit after the pandemic. But it was all stopping. It was all starting to come back here into other places. And I will tell you, I bought a lot of furniture, a lot of things. And a lot of times you'd uh, put furniture made in China into a hotel room and it would break. Somebody sits down in a chair. If you don't sit down lightly, the damn thing would collapse. <laughs> then I'd get sued, as usual, you know. But they, uh, nobody ever made it like you made it here and you make it here. So just stay, uh, stay tuned, okay? Because we were all set to bring it all back. It was all coming back. In addition, all nations should work together to present China a bill for a minimum of $10 trillion to compensate for the damage they've caused. And that's a very low number. The damage is far, far greater than that. As a first step, all countries should collectively cancel any debt they owe to China as a down payment on reparations. The nations of the world should no longer owe money to China. China has destroyed so many nations. I mean, we came out better than anybody. Our economy is stronger now than any other nation. Nobody's recovered like us because of what we've done, because we laid a great economic foundation and because of what we've done with the vaccine and the also what we've done with the distribution, the distribution of the vaccine. But China should owe money to the nations of the world. They've been destroyed. These nations have been destroyed. Sadly, the current administration is very timid and, frankly, corrupt when you look at all of the money that they've been given as a family by China, that instead of holding China accountable, the Biden administration shut down the U.S. government's investigation into the origins of the virus shortly after taking office. What's going on? Now, Hunter, who had no experience, walked out with $1.5 billion to manage. You know how much money you make on $1.5 billion to manage? They needed Hunter's advice. They don't use the smartest people on Wall Street. They don't want their advice. I spoke to somebody on Wall Street. I won't mention his name. We'll get him in trouble. But I spoke to somebody. I said, who's one of the biggest? I said, do they do this? He said, I can't get money. And this guy's record is better than anybody. Now, that's a disgrace. We must never forget that Joe Biden and his family took millions of dollars from the Chinese Communist Party. They bought them off. They flagrantly lied about it to the American voters. Uh, if you remember, it was a big deal at the time, and then all of a sudden it was canceled. They didn't want to talk about it. The big tech and the fake news media didn't want to talk about it. You could talk up a storm. In fact, I guarantee you those cameras are starting to go off right now. It's true. Yeah, those red lights. Well, there's one over there. What the hell network are you with? This guy's going to lose his job. The American voters and now Joe Biden are doing what they're doing is just terrible. And, and to the American voter and to the to our great country, our great country, because we are greater than China. There is nobody like us. Nobody has the people that we have. Nobody has the, the genius that we have. Nobody has the things or the system that we have when it works. But it's broken right now. It's corrupt. It's broken, whether it's elections, whether it's business, whether it's taxation, whether it's so many different things. Nobody has what our country has. The Biden administration has been one shameful and embarrassing foreign policy disaster. 
after another. And you know the former Secretary of State, he said, Joe's never made a good foreign policy decision. Biden cravenly lifted sanctions on Iran. Oh, Iran. Oh, I would have had a deal in one week. One week. I, I, if I weren't, I even told them, I said, you know what, let's get the election over with it. We'll make a deal. It would have been a great deal. Now they're actually asking for money. Here we go again. Remember, they got $150 billion plus $1.8 in cash. Now they're actually asking for money. They never asked me for money. It's unbelievable. It's so sad to see. So many things. That's one. Look at what's happening with North Korea. Remember when I first came in? We were going to war with North Korea. War is inevitable. Nuclear war we're talking about. And he's pretty well stocked up. And I got along with him. It started off a little rough, but we got along great. I liked him. He liked me. We got along great. And there were no problems. You don't even hear about North Korea. Now you're starting to hear. Because he doesn't seem to like Biden very much. And there's nobody to talk to. Kim Jong-un. He's a different kind of a guy. <laughs> Takes a different kind of a guy to talk to him, too. But I got along with him. Got along with him. Remember when I had the meeting, they said, he's given so much. He's given. I said, I haven't given anything. They said, hmm, that's a problem. All right. Then they said, no, no. You agreed to meet. I said, well, what the hell is that? It's a plane trip and it's back and forth. That's okay. But you know, the sanctions were all left massive. Nobody's ever been sanctioned like them. Or Russia, by the way, Russia. Not only the pipeline, but Russia. Look at the sanctions on Russia. Nobody's ever, and yet I got along great with Putin. But I got along great with Kim Jong-un. Got along great with everyone. Not all of them liked me. Germany's ripping us off on trade. They understood that. So when I want to reduce 52,000 soldiers, take out 25,000 soldiers, which costs us just tens of billions of dollars, everyone goes crazy. But I did the right thing, and they would have done anything. But now they want to put everybody back. It's a shame. Biden's also beholden to America's enemies that and so behold, and nobody's ever seen anything that he actually criticized Israel while the Jewish homeland was under attack by thousands and thousands of rockets and missiles launched by Iran. It was launched by Iran. It was a uh, betrayal of Israel when you look at what happened in Congress. You know, it used to be 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, everybody was with Israel. Today, I guess it's just not in vogue. But you look at some of these radicals that they have in the House of Representatives. You have to deal with them all the time. And uh, Israel is really almost out. It's almost out. It's a very, very terrible thing. And Biden foolishly eliminated the travel ban on terror-afflicted countries. I said, I don't want people in from countries that blow up each other. I don't want them in. I don't want people in that are going to blow up our shopping centers. I don't want people in that are going to blow up our cities. And I won in court. They said I didn't win, and they were right. I lost at the lower court. I lost at the second court. And then I won at the Supreme Court, and we have a travel ban. And now they want to give it up. When the press talks about the travel ban, you ever notice that he lost in court? And they're right. I lost here, I lost there, and then I won. We got the travel ban. They don't mention the last one. But we have a travel ban, and they are ending the travel ban, as I understand it. So they don't mind people coming in that like to blow things up and kill people. And he's taking action to increase the number of refugee admissions by 700%. This is announced up.
but it'll soon be by over 2,000 percent, and that'll go up and up and up. And I don't know what they're doing. They don't need them for voting. And a lot of people say they want them for voting, but they don't need them because they cheat so much in the voting, you don't have to go through this process, okay? They don't need them. I keep saying you don't, they don't need them for voting. They just throw the ballots in there. Just what do we need people coming in? We don't need that. We'll just throw those ballots in there and many other things. Yep, they're destroying our country. And now Biden is being openly mocked by China's negotiators and Russian President Putin. And they're taunting him and they're laughing at him and they're humiliating our country. And uh, do you ever notice when uh, he had a hard time going up the stairs on the plane? Nobody talks about that. Nobody talks. The news didn't cover it. Not one network covered it. Now, when I made the best speech I've ever made, they said it was at West Point. And it was pouring. And I had a ramp that was a nice skating rink. And I called. I said to the general, I said, General, I may have to grab you, because the last thing I'm doing is going down. <laughs> so I walked gingerly down. That was on every newscast in the world. And I never went down, either. I never went on my ass, I'll tell you. I wasn't going to fall. I think that was a booby trap. I think I'll never forget that ramp. That was like a sheet of ice. It was cold, rainy, and that ramp was long and steep. I said, General, I might have to grab you, but I'm not going down under. And unfortunately, I wasn't wearing American shoes. I had Italian shoes, nice leather. Leather. It's like an ice skating rink. But they made that a big story, but they didn't make the Biden fall. The triple fall. I call it the triple fall. <laughs> Under my administration, America was respected again, totally respected. We withdrew from the disastrous Iran nuclear deal. We stood with Israel, recognized Jerusalem as its eternal capital, and recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. They've been working on that for 55 years, and I got it done. We decimated the ranks of the world's top terrorists. You know that. We got our allies to pay their fair share. We stood up for our freedoms and for our country. And we stood up to America's adversaries like never before. Nobody's ever done what we've done. I got other countries with NATO to pay. We were paying for NATO. We were paying for NATO. I got them to pay $430 billion. Nobody knows. Nobody. You don't read about that. Uh, the head of NATO is probably my single biggest fan. Secretary General of NATO, they couldn't believe. You know, if you look at NATO, they're spending. So we were getting ripped off on trade, okay? And on top of it, we were protecting them militarily. And how about Germany? They pay Putin, they pay Russia billions of dollars for energy, and then we protect Germany from Russia. How does that work? Think of it. They pay Russia billions and billions for the pipeline that nobody even knew was being built until I started making it a big case, because I said, why are you doing this? You're paying them billions of dollars, and then we're protecting you from them. What the hell kind of a deal are we? What are we doing? It's not believe. I could name so many. I could say so many different things. South Korea. Uh, I got them to pay hundreds of millions of dollars a year. They hadn't paid for years and years and years anything substantial. And my deal was they were going to pay billions of dollars, and it would have already taken place. And I refused to renew the deal. The deal expired. He knows better than anybody. I said, we're going on a month-to-month -month basis. Do you believe it? They wanted, we want a five-year deal. I said, no, no, no. 
because you're not paying us. Why are we protecting you? You took our television business, you built the ships, you built everything. You're making a fortune, and you're not paying us for military protection. And we're protecting you against a very hostile nation. Why? And they were very angry. They're great negotiators. But finally, they agreed to pay hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was because their budget had already been passed. I said, that's okay. But in January, February, we're going to meet, and you're going to pay us $5 billion a year. And they said, no, no, no. But eventually, they said, you know, I can tell when they're going to — they're about ready to fold. So we didn't renew the deal, and we were going to get billions and billions of dollars from South Korea, who we protect. And they're great. They're wonderful. Everything's wonderful. But we were being taken advantage of. Again, kill us on trade and kill us on the military. And what happened? They just renewed it for a cost-of-living increase. Think of it, a cost-of-living increase. So we've been protecting them for 85 years, and uh, they'll pay if you ask them. Nobody asks. In fact, they said, I said, why are we paying for your military? Because that is the way it has always been. Well, that's not a great answer, I didn't think. I said, but that won't be the way, but I guess he turned out to be right, because they just got a cost of living. Think of that, a cost of living increase of less than 1%. We would have gotten at least $5 billion from them. We fully rebuilt the U.S. military and created the first new branch of the United States Armed Forces in 75 years called the Space Force, so desperately needed. A lot of people, a lot of things happening right here on the Space Force, too. We ended the forever wars in Iraq and Syria and Somalia and Afghanistan. We brought them back home. And this is just the finishing little. We have brought them back home. We're down to very few soldiers in any of those places. And, uh, I'm very proud of it. These were the endless wars, so bad, so bad. I'd visit soldiers at Walter Reed Hospital, where the doctors are truly fantastic, what they can do. But I'd see these young people that were just blown to pieces, and it's just, it's so sad. I'd uh, be at Dover, where the, these magnificent machines would come in, the big cargo planes, and that door would open up, and there'd be a coffin in the back. And the military, the soldiers would take that coffin and walk it off the plane. And I'd be with the parents an hour before, and we'd be talking. And I'd say to the general in charge, General, the parents seem to be okay. And he'd say, no, they're not, sir. They're not okay. I said, General, I'm having a great conversation. And the mothers oftentimes would say, oh, my son was such a great football player. Sir, he had an arm that was so powerful. He was so strong. And he could throw a ball so far. He was such a good player or other things. They'd tell me these stories about — they just were so in love with telling the stories about their son or their daughter. In some cases, their daughter. And then I'd look at the general and say, well, it's amazing the way they can handle it. And then the plane would come in, and the general would say, sir, it's not going to be good. And that door would open up, that big back door, right, would open up from this incredible, powerful machine that can lift up army tanks like it's nothing. And it would open up, and there'd be one or two or three or four coffins. And I'd see the same people that were talking to me so jubilant about their child, how great the child was would start screaming, screaming. Screams like I've never heard before. It, it was the most uh, terrible thing to watch. And the 
general in charge would say, sir, um, you're going to see things that you maybe will not have seen. Like what, general? He said, mothers and wives and even fathers sometimes breaking through the military ranks and jumping on top of the coffin. And I got to see that one time where a mother was just, uh, she went just absolutely, she was devastated. She jumped on and these incredible, extremely fit soldiers are taking that coffin and would jump onto the coffin and they would just keep what? They wouldn't do a thing. They would just keep walking. And the mother was on the coffin and this is for Afghanistan and for Iraq and for these other places where so many mistakes were made where we shouldn't be and we can't do that and we're moving them out we're moving them back 21 years you know you've heard 19 years but it's not 19 now it's 21 years in afghanistan uh, it's enough and we haven't lost a soldier in afghanistan since january of last year we haven't lost a soldier. not one single soldier has been lost pretty amazing pretty amazing so it's hard to believe the records the Biden administration is doing, and I'm very glad that he's continuing to move them out. I think it would be very hard to stop, to be honest. I think, frankly, stopping would be very, very hard. But uh, so I'm very honored by the fact that they're continuing to bring those soldiers home where they belong. And we have other things to possibly get ready for because, you know, the bigger ball game, we have to be respected as a military power because if we're not respected these other countries that are very big very powerful countries they will take advantage of us and you know what i mean by that so we cannot be doing what we've been doing for the last very long period of time when we got into iraq i said as a private individual many years ago don't go but if you're going to go keep the oil we didn't keep the oil and they make a lot of money with that oil i know how much money they make they make a lot of money and we are looked upon as not very smart people and not a very smart country. So we're doing things that nobody thought were possible. The radical Democrat Party has become consumed by the unquenchable thirst of power. You know that. I don't know. You know, it's a term that I've heard for a long time. They want power, power, power. I don't know. I think it's power. It's money. I think it's a lot of things. I don't think it's just power. It's too ridiculous. They want to take away freedom of speech. They want to take away religious liberty. And Biden has already introduced legislation in Congress to take away your guns. You know, your guns, they were under siege. You do know that. And I told you all these things. Again, nobody ever thought what is happening would happen. In Texas, I said, we're going to win. We won Texas by a lot. We won Texas by, but they were against oil, guns, and God. And then you'd listen to the fake news. It's going to be a very close race in Texas. It wasn't very close at all. Republicans must never waver in protecting the Second Amendment and keep and bear arms. We have to keep, we have to have that power to keep and bear arms. If we don't, we will have a problem like nobody's ever seen before. But they want to take away your guns. And I said it before the election, and I say it after the election. The Biden administration has also issued regulations to indoctrinate America's school children with poisonous and divisive left-wing doctrines, such as critical race theory and exact opposite of the American belief that we all 
are created equal in the holy image of God. Uh, we have uh, a group of people. I don't know where they come from, but it's terrible. Just as the state House of Representatives has done right here in North Carolina, Republicans at every level should move immediately to ban critical race theory in our schools. And we should ban it in workplaces. We should ban it in our states. And we should ban it in the federal government. And it should be done immediately. should be done very quickly. Washington Democrats are also pushing legislation to spend billions and billions of dollars on phony civic education, giving students academic credit to show up at protests. Can you believe that? And make themselves into left-wing activists. And how badly do they treat people that tend to be on the right compared to people that are on the radical left? Look at what happened in Portland. Nothing's happening with these people. And they do kill people, and they burn down buildings, and they go after federal buildings, and, and nothing happens. And people are damn angry about it. If government-run schools are going to indoctrinate children with radical ideas, Republicans must immediately pass legislation to empower every parent in America to opt out of the insanity and send their child to the public, private, charter, or religious school of their choice. The Socialist Democrats' quest for whatever it is they're looking for, because nobody knows, I don't even think they know, truly knows no bounds. The slander that they cause, they slander our country, disparage our founding, divide our children. And as we've seen time and time again in recent years, the left is willing to weaponize the law itself to persecute their political opponents. There are people in this room that have been persecuted. In New York, radical left prosecutors are right now spending vast amounts of time and money threatening families and trying to destroy the lives of innocent people, really, really good people, in their crusade to inflict pain on me. The radical left movement in New York, there's no place where it's worse or more corrupt. And most importantly, to stop our movement, 75 million voters plus, plus, plus. That's what I say. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of radical left Democrat money have been paid to these prosecutors in the form of campaign contributions. Go get Trump! Go get him! And now a new group of far-left Democrats are seeking the prosecutor's office, all fighting for who will be the toughest on Trump. They're going to get elected. Whoever's the vicious, the most tough. They don't know anything about me. We're going to get Trump! What did he do? Well, we don't know, but we'll figure it out. Washington Post reported the other day they've gotten millions of pages of documents. Well, when did he do a deal? Oh, did he do another deal? Did he? They're going through every deal, every deal I've ever done. Millions and millions of pages. If there's a comma, mistake. If there's a misspelling, it's problems. You know what? It's a disgrace to our country. It's prosecutorial misconduct. They're in search of a crime. 
It's a fishing expedition, and the Supreme Court of the United States should not have allowed it to happen. Shouldn't have allowed it. And they mention it can't be a fishing expedition. This is the ultimate fishing expedition. It's been a five-year-long witch hunt, hoax after hoax. Russia, 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 Ukraine, the Mueller hoax. Look at the Mueller scam. How well did he do before Congress? It wasn't too good, was it? Lie after lie, corrupt investigation after corrupt investigation. Do you remember when they found out it was Hillary Clinton and the Democrats that paid for the dossier, the fake news dossier, the fake dossier? It was Hillary Clinton. And they got more than the great James Patterson, this guy Christopher Steele. I don't know who the hell he is, but he sure as hell hated me. It was a total phony deal, paid for by the Democrats and crooked Hillary Clinton. And nothing happens to them. And by the way, where's Durham? What happened to Durham? Where is it? Has anyone seen Durham? All of this for nothing. It's a shame. It's a shame. They do things a little bit differently. We'll never let it happen again. Now they just send the same information from the no-collusion Mueller investigation to corrupt politicians in New York. They send everything that they've already gone over and over. And send it into New York. Let the radical left prosecutors go after Trump. Just give it a shot, they say. Give it a shot. They failed in Washington. They failed all over the place. Between the impeachment hoax number one, impeachment hoax number two, all of these investigations. Oh, shit, we failed. <laughs> Let's send it to the radical left prosecutors in New York. Maybe they can have more luck. They'll never stop until November of 2024. They won't stop. There's no better example of the Democrat and media corruption than the 2020 election hoax. As you know, the evidence is too voluminous to even mention. All you have to do is read the article in Time Magazine, cover story in Time Magazine. I'm not a big fan. I was on the cover a lot. Perhaps a record. A lot. I got to a point, you know, if I was ever on the cover, I was on the cover of Time Magazine before I did this political thing. And I read every word I said, I wonder what that means. And it was actually a very good story. You know, I used to actually get good press. Can you believe it? I guess that's how I got to be president, when you think about it. But I used to get great press. But Time Magazine did a story. They couldn't help themselves. They had to brag about what they did in November. They had to brag. And that story just goes 25% of the way. But if you take it a little bit further, you'll just read that and you see how corrupt. But that's the least of it. You look at what happened on that evening when the election was won. And all, all of a sudden, vast amounts of votes were taken in, just in certain states, swing states. Swing states that I was leading by a lot. Then all of a sudden, oh, something happened. It was a disgrace to our country. And if you think people don't see it, people see it. People have seen it. The 2020 presidential election. That election, the 2020 presidential election, was by far the most corrupt election in the history of our country. There's never been anything like this. They used COVID, and they used the mail-in ballots to steal an election. 
It was the third world country election like we've never seen before. Look at what took place. I want to congratulate, by the way, Republican state senators in Arizona and other places for their great work that they are doing and exposing this fraud. And maybe, again, I have nothing to do with the Arizona situation. They're doing it. The state senate of Arizona, because there are so many discrepancies, so many problems, and they've heard from so many people about the corruption and what took place. So they're doing it. Let's see what happens. They'll be finished in three or four weeks. It'll be very interesting. But I'll tell you, I take — and maybe they'll find nothing. Maybe they'll say, oh, it was a wonderful, perfect election. But maybe not. And now they're looking at it in Pennsylvania, and they're looking at it in Georgia, and they're looking at it in many other states, because they're saying, you know, the same things happened to us. That election will go down as the crime of the century, and our country is being destroyed by people who perhaps have no right to destroy it. Zuckerberg broke the law, spending millions of dollars. Don't you think he broke the law? Millions of dollars to get out the vote efforts in highly Democrat areas. You know, he used to come to the White House. He'd call, oh, could I have dinner with you, sir? Sure. Could I bring my wife? Oh, absolutely. He actually walked into the office one day in front of numerous people. Congratulations, sir. Why? He said, you're number one on Facebook. He said to me, you're number one on Facebook. I said, thank you very much. I appreciate it. We had a nice dinner. The day I was out, he became uh, rather, well, I guess it's human nature. But we can't let our country be run by that kind of human nature, can we? Zuckerberg, it's another beauty. But they say they may allow me back in two years. No, I'm, not, uh, I'm not too interested in that. They may allow me back in two years. We got to stop that. We can't let it happen. So unfair. They're shutting down an entire group of people. Not just me. They're shutting down the voice of a tremendously powerful, in my opinion, a much more powerful and a much larger group. Because you know what? When the Democrats say defund the police, open borders, sanctuary cities, all of these horrible, horrible cancel culture things, their policy is terrible. And I say a lot now, there's no way they go 50-50. Who the hell wants to defund the police? Look at what's happening where they're defunding the police. The crime rate is going up by 50, 60, 100 percent, 131 percent in one city. They don't even know what to do, but they keep doing it. The policy is so bad. You know what? They're smart. And I said, they're vicious and they stick together. But I don't believe it's 50-50 because our country isn't there. We're not a 50-50 country to defund the police and to have sanctuary cities where criminals are allowed to be protected. I'm telling you, I think a lot of these elections where they always seem to have an advantage, I don't believe it. I can't believe that some of these states that are blue, that they're blue. I know those people. They're smart people. And I see so many people. They love me because they love what I stand for. And they're not into these things. There's something going on. And we have to be very, very careful with our election process because I don't believe we're a 50-50 nation where these states are split evenly. They can't be split. This is corrupt elections, possibly, and we can't allow it to go on. And I can tell you, and you'll see it, because more and more it's coming out, the things that happened in the recent election, dead people voting, dead people. 
Worse is dead people voting who had to apply to vote. So you had people that are dead that applied to vote. And by the way, I'm talking about thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people, dead people, illegal aliens voting. Indians getting paid to vote in certain states, including Arizona and Nevada, getting paid to vote. You're not allowed to get paid to vote. It's a terrible thing that's going on. We have to clean up those rolls. We have to do so many things. Or we're not going to have a country. If you don't have election integrity and if you don't have strong borders, our country can be run like a dictatorship. And that's what they'd like to do. I don't even think Biden is the dictator. If anybody knows who the hell is running that operation, could you let us know? Because I don't think it's Joe, but who the hell knows? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. And with all of the things currently going on, especially the prosecutorial misconduct that's going on at a level like nobody's seen for many, many years, that's all that's happening. And that's what they're doing. They want to silence you. They want to silence your voice. Remember, I am not the one trying to undermine American democracy. I'm the one that's trying to save it. Please remember that. We all know what happened with the election, and we can never, ever let that happen again. And we're going to go forward, and we're going to continue to look, and things are being found that is not even believable. But we have to do that, because without going back, you're not going to go forward. The thing that I get most is that, sir, we can't let that happen again. If we're going to work and work and spend money and make contributions, sir, will the same thing happen in 2022 to Ted and to other people? Will the same thing happen as happened in 20? We have to be able to say absolutely not. That's why I love what they've done in Texas. I love what they're doing in Florida and done in Florida. I would like to see Georgia be much tougher. They don't have signature verification. They don't have things that Georgia has to be tougher. But I love what's going on in so many states, 41 different states, because they saw what happened in this last disaster, and they don't want it to happen again. And the only way you're going to be able to really solve that problem is to figure out exactly what happened. And you know what? They're going to be able to do that. In light of so many outrageous wrongs, Republicans across the country are pursuing voting reforms to ensure election integrity. One of the biggest things that I hear is election integrity. Joe Biden called these common sense reforms un-American. But the thing that is really un-American is an election scam. That's un-American. You know, all over the world, they used to say, oh, they're the land of the free. They have great elections. We don't have great elections. We have elections like probably very few countries have, and that's in a bad way, not in a good way. What happened to this country in that last election was a disgrace, and it's being laughed at and viewed all over the world. And I can tell you China is extremely happy about it, and Russia is extremely happy about it. They're all very, very happy about it. Probably in order, I would say China, and then I would say Iran, and then I would say many countries. I'd go, I could go through a list of them, but China is certainly happy. Iran is certainly happy. And think of it. 
If the bill passed by the House Democrats, H.R. 1, is ever signed into law, there will never be another fair election in our country. It can't get worse, but it would be almost as bad as the recent presidential election. To fully secure every future election, we must have photo ID, universal signature verification, citizenship confirmation, chain of custody integrity control, Updated voter rolls for every election. You got to update those voter rolls, not people that have been dead for nine years. We can't have illegal aliens allowed to vote. Strong protection of poll watchers. Our poll watchers are poor, poor poll watchers. What happened to them in Philadelphia? What happened to them in Detroit, where they were literally thrown out of election for days and were actually afraid for their lives? And we cannot have drop boxes paid for by Facebook and Zuckerberg. Where, by the way, massive numbers, 95, 96 percent of the vote is for Joe Biden. Doesn't happen. You ever see these drop boxes? Some of them came back very late. They got lifted, taken. Where are they? A day later. Where are they? Oh, they're coming. Oh, great. That's wonderful. 96 percent for Joe Biden. We must eliminate the absurdity of mass mail-in voting, and people should vote in person on Election Day, not over weeks and months where all sorts of things can happen, and they're not good things for our country. And there should have to be a legitimate reason for someone to vote absentee. There are people that deserve it. They're sick. They're at a certain age. They can't make it, and they love our country. There's a certain group of people, military. But for to do what you did, where you're sending out millions and millions. And by the way, I don't know if those of you that are really into the world of politics, you know that I called this long before when I heard what they were doing, how they were allowed to do this, send out millions and millions of ballots. Some people got six. Some people got seven ballots to send out millions of ballots to allow that to happen to our country. We know the radical left will stop at nothing in their efforts to destroy the America we love. But with the help of righteous American patriots like all of you in this room, they will fail. Our movement is far from over. In fact, it is just getting started. Here in North Carolina, across the country, the Republican Party will continue to fight for strong families, safe communities, and secure and sovereign borders. We will fight for more jobs, lower taxes, and pro-American trade deals that result in more North Carolina workers forging more products stamped with beautiful, beautiful phrases, but in particular, made in the USA, Mr. Furniture Manufacturer. We will shut down outsourcing, bring back our supply chains, crack down on trade cheaters and violators, and ensure that America, not China, dominates the future of the world. We will protect innocent life. We will defend our glorious Constitution, and we will uphold the Judeo-Christian values and principles of our nation's founding. We will break up the big tech monopolies, reject left-wing cancel culture, restore free speech in America, 
and demand free, fair, and honest, transparent elections. We will strengthen our military, support our great police, and always take care of our amazing veterans. Do you know that we got a 92% approval rating with respect to the VA? They rated us 92% approval rating. It's never been anywhere even near that number. Very proud of that. And with the American pride that fills our souls, we will teach our children to love their country, honor our history, and always respect our great American flag. Tomorrow marks the 77th anniversary of one of the most epic military triumphs in the history of the world, the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day. As we remember this incredible achievement, let us summon the spirit of generations of Americans before us who gave their blood, sweat, and tears for our beloved country. All of us in this room inherit the legacy of the selfless patriots who won the battles, crossed the oceans, forged the steel, made the breakthroughs, climbed the summits, these great, beautiful summits, tamed the frontiers and seized the victories that built America into the single greatest nation in the history of the world. And that's where we want to keep it. That is our magnificent American inheritance. And there is nothing like it anywhere in the world, and there never will be. So let us go forward tonight, moved by their sacrifice, motivated by their example, inspired by their resolve, committed to their values, and more determined than ever to make America prouder, freer, stronger, and greater than ever before. Thank you, North Carolina. God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you very much. Thank you.